0: Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com.
1: Good morning. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us His Word, at the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, This is the Word of the Lord. And then we invite you to respond together. Thanks be to God. Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Samuel, chapter 14, verses 24 through 37. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now, when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb. And put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. This is the word of the Lord. At this time, uh, the kingdom kids are dismissed to their classrooms.
0: All right. Thank you, Chris. Good morning, once again. Good to be with you guys. The uh, kids are making their way to their uh, classrooms. So if you guys have a good time back there, uh, in here we're going to be uh, continuing through our uh, series in First and Second Samuel. And uh, today we're going to look at uh, part two of three of the downfall of King Saul and ultimately how his kingdom is lost. Uh, You're going to have to come back next week for the kind of crash uh, landing ending of Saul's uh, reign as king, and uh, Pastor Rob is going to lead us through that next week. But as we look at today's story, uh, like most of 1 Samuel, uh, it is a story that is full of the dramatic. I mean, the storyline here is kind of like the stuff of soap operas. I mean, it involves somebody taking an oath that they decide they can't get out of no matter what. Uh, There's tantalizing temptations in front of the people. Uh, There's a people who eventually get uh, hangry. You know what hangry is, right? Um, They get hangry. They're hungry and they're angry, and they fail spectacularly. And there's a growing, budding rivalry between a jealous father who feels like things are slipping away and a faithful son. I mean, it really is the stuff of high drama TV television, isn't it? TV television, that's not what I'm trying to say. TV drama, isn't it? I mean, this is the story as it goes in here. It's it's full of all sorts of fun stuff. But here's what's at the center of it all. The center of this story is this kind of tormented figure that is King Saul. And as we continue to look at his life and leadership, I want us to wrestle with a few things today. And we're going to come around to the end of chapter 14 and see this by the end of our time today. Here's the question I want us to wrestle with. How are you defining success for your life? What would you, if at a future time you had the advantage to look back and reflect on your life, how would you look back and think, you know what, that was a life well lived. What are the metrics that you're using? What are the things that you are chasing after? Uh, Maybe another way to frame this is maybe to the parents in the room. Parents, how are you envisioning success for your children? What are you hoping that they grow up to be or to do one day? What comes to mind? See, I think that the temptation that lies at the heart of King Saul and also lies at each and every one of our hearts in this room this morning is a competing vision of what a successful life looks like. On the one hand, you have the view from below, you could say, and we're going to get that evaluation of King Saul, the view from an earthly standpoint where we maybe want to define success by uh, how much we're able to accrue in our bank account or our uh, retirement plan, how much we were able to accomplish the dreams and goals that are constantly dangled in front of us. Maybe for our kids, it's that they just grow up, be successful, get a job, and move out of our house. Maybe there's a little tinge of that deep down underneath, right? But we also need to wrestle with not just the view from below, but the view from above. It's one thing to ask you, what do you think your life would look like if it were a success? It may be a whole different thing to ask, what would God's evaluation of your life look like? What are the metrics that He uses? And right in the middle of that stands King Saul. and We're going to see today that unfortunately, he chases after a successful life that is marked by worldly pursuits and not the favor of God Himself. And that battle that is waging in His heart that we get some insight into today is the same thing that is being waged in our hearts, and we need to sit under God's Word and ask Him to show us where we might be chasing after the wrong thing today. So here's our main idea this morning. The Lord desires a humble heart of faithfulness more than empty religiosity and worldly success. The Lord desires a humble heart of faithfulness more than empty religiosity and worldly success. Before we jump in, let's pray. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Word. Uh, We thank You that it uh, gives to us all that we need for life and godliness. So I pray right now that we would uh, humbly submit ourselves to it as we continue to trace this story of King Saul, the king that the people wanted Uh, We we pray that You would show us the ways that we're more like Him than we might be uh, willing to admit. Show us where we're chasing after the wrong things in this life, where we have defined success in a way that You have not defined success. And Holy Spirit, as we submit ourselves to that, may You give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to respond in a fresh way to the good news of the gospel and the grace and the glory that has appeared for us in Jesus Christ. Help us land there today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, as normal, we've got three movements through the text today. Uh, Tried to have some fun with the sermon points, got to keep things fresh for you as we keep walking through 1 Samuel. So we're going to look today at bright eyes and empty bellies, first of all. Secondly, silly vows and silent responses. And then thirdly, history's accounting and God's assessment. Uh, But let's begin with bright eyes and empty bellies, shall we? Hopefully you're not too hungry this morning. Uh, We need to note by beginning the contrast, by noting the contrast between verses 23 and 24. Last week we saw uh, that the Lord, uh, by His own might and strength, delivered His people, the Israelites, who had no weapons of their own, uh, over the Philistines. He caused the ground to quake, the Philistines to turn against one another, and the comment in verse 23 is, so the Lord saved Israel that day. But then we get to verse 24, and the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So, none of the people had tasted food. Now, here's what happens. Saul takes what was a great, unlikely victory from the Lord, and he finds a way to spoil it. As I heard someone put it this week, there is no good situation that Saul can't ruin. We don't know exactly when he made this oath, but as the battle pressed on the Israelites, Saul imposed this vow on his own accord that the people cannot eat until the Philistines are defeated. And in doing so, Saul turns the deliverance of the Lord into the distress of the people. Ironically and sadly. It tells us back in chapter 13 that the Israelites were hard-pressed by the Philistines, but now that same language shows up. They are hard-pressed, but not by the enemy, but by their very own king. Now, it was a known practice for troops to make a fast in order to be focused and prepared for the battle that was at hand. But the problem seems to lie with the motivation of King Saul. Note the way that this oath is framed. He does not invoke... God in this oath, does he? He does not look to God and say, Lord, in order for us to make sure we're aware of what you're doing so we can be focused on your activity, we're going to withhold from food. That's not what he says. Look back at verse 24. Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. You hear that there, right? This is a personal vendetta from King Saul. This is set in contrast to that of his son, Jonathan. Remember back in verse 6 of chapter 14, Jonathan had a model prayer where he says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. Jonathan has a vertical orientation that Saul does not have. He is lacking that in his life and his leadership. And just as last week, he blew the trumpet and proclaimed that he had won a great victory that his son had actually won, here he is motivated by his own reputation and namesake. He wants the success of the world. He wants people to recognize Him as the one who is going to be avenged on the enemies. And Saul has shown that he is not willing to follow the commandments of the Lord, so what does he do? He starts making his own commandments as king, all on his own, without divine guidance or prayer or, as we're going to see, just common sense wisdom. And rather than motivate or focus his troops. The text says multiple times it had the exact opposite effect. It says twice that this made them faint rather than invigorated. Rather than boosting morale, it is deflating and discouraging. So then after a hard day of battle, the story predictably goes like this, verse 25, now the people came to the forest, and behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Now put yourself in this situation. This is tantalizing, isn't it? I mean, who doesn't like honey? Honey's great, sweet, it's good for you, as far as I know. (laughs) Tastes good enough for you, right? It's right there in front of them. You can imagine the angst amongst the soldiers. After all, it's just a little drop. It's not like we're eating a full-course meal, right? We just get a little bit of honey. The honey is dripping right in front of them, asking for a taste, but they feared the oath. They feared Saul and his erratic, unpredictable leadership that runs throughout this whole scene. And then, as it continually happens in this part of Samuel, here comes Jonathan standing in contrast to his father. Verse 27, Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth. And it says, his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. And Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright, because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, for now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great." Now, it's important to note here, Jonathan is unaware of this oath by his father. So, he is not outright acting in disobedience. He's not just being a challenger of a son. He comes back from stirring up opposition against the Philistines, doesn't know, eats the honey, but then as he eats, rather than all of a sudden a divine curse falling upon Jonathan, instead he appears to receive the exact opposite. He receives a blessing His eyes became bright, which in the Hebrew has this idea of being refreshed and invigorated. But the people see what Jonathan is doing, and they are horrified all of a sudden. But Jonathan says, no, 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 my father has troubled the land. Saul has a knack for seemingly always doing the exact opposite of what faithfulness to God would look like. You catching on to that in the story? He forbids what the Lord has gladly provided to the people. I mean, you know what this scene sounds like, the people roll up on the forest and honey is covering the ground. It sounds just like the Lord providing manna in the wilderness for His people. He delivers His people and then provides the spoils. And here He delivers His people, provides the honey, but Saul refuses to to allow the people to enjoy the spoils of the Lord's victory. And the defeat of the Philistines, Jonathan says, has not been great. As the tension is building, the scene gets worse from there, verse 31, they struck down the Philistines that day, verse 32, the people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. And they told Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood, and he said, you have done treacherously, roll a great stone to me here. The people dutifully keep on fighting for their king until they strike them down. Now it gets to be the evening, and they are literally starving, so they take the spoil of victory, and and the text says they pounce on it. It's like they're a wild animal going after a piece of meat. Or they're like our youth and students here with a taco party pack from Taco Bell, I hear. I hear you all crush from Taco Bell. I'm, I'm down with that. But they start to eat so quickly that they eat it with the blood. Now this is a problem because of what the law of God says. Back in Leviticus 17, the law strictly forbid the Israelites from eating meat with blood. The blood was to be drained and used for atoning sacrifices. Now that can seem archaic to us. The rationale behind that was that blood signified life, and life belongs to God. But the people of God are so hungry to satisfy their craving for food that they give no attention to this. Uh, By the way, sometimes people accuse Christians of kind of cherry-picking what parts of the Bible we follow and we don't. Uh, We no longer follow that, by the way, uh, because Christ's blood has been atoned once and for all for sin. The sacrifice of animals was a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Christ comes to fulfill the law and the prophets, and Christ Himself declares all foods clean. So this evening, enjoy your medium-rare steak to the glory of God. Let your conscience not be burdened. So, here's the picture. Saul is imposing a man-made oath and commandment on the people under the guise that he's being faithful to God, but his oath provokes the people to sin. His foolish man-made commandment makes them break God's clear commandments. They're so fearful of their king that they lose their fear of God. And in this, Saul is acting a little bit like the Pharisees in the New Testament, those religious leaders who challenge Jesus and his disciples that, hey, you're not following the customs of the day. You're not adhering to the oaths and the, the practices that we have. And Jesus looks at them and says, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of tradition." That's what Saul has led his people to do. So Saul tries to make it right, verse 34, Saul said, "'Disperse yourselves among the people. Say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. Do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood.'" So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar he built to the Lord. Now, here's why this is a little bit humorous on the surface. Remember, Saul in the last chapter is the one who is willing to cut corners, and he is the one, uh, as far as God's law goes, and he is the one who devised this crazy plan himself. But now, all of a sudden, he is very concerned about the people's obedience and that they follow proper protocols before the Lord. By the way, you sense the tone there. He says, you have done treacherously. He has no ability to see that this is his own provoking never once considers that he might be the root of the problem. Now let's step back for a minute. What do we make of all that? Well, here's the observation that struck me this week that I don't want us to miss. Uh, Eugene Peterson points out that it is interesting that as Saul's kingdom is slipping away from him and as he seems more and more out of step and out of touch with the things of the Lord, he actually becomes more and more religious. You notice that? But the problem is, his religiosity is all on the outside. It's all external. Saul exhibits an empty, external type of religion. It's the kind of religiosity that Jesus warns about in the Sermon on the Mount. It's all for externals. It's all for show. It's all from a wrong heart, and ultimately it is empty and devoid of any power. Ultimately here, Saul is acting as a legalist, because here's what legalists love to do. They love to make rules where God has not made rules. And when we do this, because we all do this at some level, it's wired into us as fallen creatures, it gives us a perceived sense of control. When everything begins to spiral out of control for Saul, what does he do? He starts getting a little bit more religious. Let's start drawing lines. Let's start making oaths. Let's make this ultra real quick to make sure that the people out there stop sinning. Now, here's what we want to be careful with. Saul, we don't want to get the wrong impression here. Saul is not this fearer of God who is trying his best, but God is just up there being mean and rejecting him. No, Saul, in his unbelief, and driven by his own fear and insecurities, is trying to use this external religiosity to manipulate and curry God's favor. And I think he does this without even realizing it. It is the default of his own heart, and if we're not careful, it's the default of our own hearts as well. In Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland puts it this way. He says, works righteousness or legalism is the subtle proclivity to seek to leverage Christ's favor." with our behavior. There's an entire psychological substructure that due to the fall is a near constant manufacturing of relational leveraging, fear-stuffing, nervousness, score-keeping, neurotic controlling, anxiety-festering, silliness. That is not something we say or even think so much as something we exhale. And if you trace this fountain of scurrying haste, In all its various manifestations, down to the root, you will find gospel deficit. You will find a lack of felt awareness of Christ's heart. Again, Saul does not have that vertical orientation necessary in his life to experience that grace of God toward him. It is all spiraling a bit out of control, and he has the inability to process life underneath God's sovereign story and care. Instead, he keeps acting as he sees fit and then tries to justify his behavior, missing the heart of the matter. And notice, he is burdening himself and burdening everybody around him. He is driven by what is impressive or what is expedient or what is going to, quote-unquote, win by the world's standards. And in all of this, He is exactly what Paul warns about in 2 Timothy 3, that he has the appearance of godliness but denies its power. So, this morning, brothers and sisters, have you had an experience with the grace of God toward you? Have you seen supremely the grace of God toward you in the heart of Jesus himself? Because if not, legalism will follow. You'll find yourself start making oaths, and drawing lines where God has not drawn them, and then one day you will throw those back in God's face and others' face when things don't go your way. This is the story of the prodigal son, right? The younger son is welcomed home, and the older son, when the party is happening, is outside pouting. And his father comes out, and he says, all these years I've slaved for you. That's what it literally says in the Greek. And you've never rewarded me. The father comes out and says, I love you, and all that is mine. Is yours. He doesn't want the son's slavery. He wants the son. And the way out of that cycle is to really step into that reality, to be renewed from the inside out. You need a heart that is softened by the love of the Father seen through the grace of the Son. Secondly, let's look at silly vows and silent responses beginning in verse 36. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night. And plunder them until the morning light. I don't think that rhymes in the Hebrew, but that's a good little phrase there in the English. Uh, Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. So Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he, God, did not answer him that day. See, Saul's whiplash style of leadership continues. And now that it is evening and his men are fed and their bellies are now full, he urges them, let's keep going. Let's attack the Philistines and plunder them until the morning. However, Saul, who just built an altar to the Lord, has already forgotten about the Lord mere moments later. You can picture this scene, the crowd is there, they're listening to Saul, and then there's a priest in the back who kind of raises his hand like, hey, Saul… By the way, he's a rejected priest, which is humorous in this whole scene. He's in this rejected priesthood. He raises his hand and says, hey, Saul, do you think maybe we should ask the Lord if he wants to do that or not? So Saul goes, oh, yeah, that's right. They consult the Lord, but there's this uncomfortable, divine silence. And this is precisely what Samuel told them was going to happen. Back in chapter 8, it says, in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. It's already happening. So Saul begins to panic. Verse 38, he says, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. The silence of God is compounded here by the silence of the people. Don't miss this picture. Saul is all alone. The prophet of God who had the Word of God, he walked away from Saul in the last chapter. His son, Jonathan, is doing his own thing, and now the people that he leads have left him too, fearful to step in. And here's where all of this gets worse. Notice that Saul invokes Jonathan there. Uh, he seems to know that something is up with Jonathan. He knows from earlier in this chapter that Jonathan and his armor bearer are missing when they do an accounting of the people. He knows that they've provoked the Philistines, which ends up with this great victory of the Lord on behalf of his people. But rather than course correct, rather than sense what is obvious, he doubles down. This seems to be from that place of jealousy and insecurity. So he goes on this long charade to try to identify the source of the so-called problem and they cast lots until Jonathan is taken. In verse 43, Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. I think this is a little sanctified sarcasm, by the way. It's my favorite It's my favorite tone in the Bible as someone who loves some sarcasm. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Now, Saul here is interrogating Jonathan just like Samuel interrogated him in chapter 13 after his unlawful sacrifice. You see, Saul now takes it upon himself to act as a prophet. But notice the freedom of Jonathan's response here. In that response of, yeah, I ate some honey, go ahead and kill me. Do you sense the freedom in that? Do you sense the unburdened conscience that must be there? And this is the pattern in 1 Samuel. The author's painting this irony over and over again. Saul makes sure that he builds this altar to the Lord so that the Lord's sovereign right over life and death and the eating of the blood is honored. But now, when it comes to his son Jonathan, who clearly is the hero of the story, who is not under a curse but a divine blessing, he is willing on his own to take the divine prerogative of the Lord and shed the blood of his own son. He basically looks at Jonathan and says, well, it's either you or me, and he chooses himself. And by the way, praise be to God that the gospel tells us we don't have a king like that. We have a king who has shed his own blood in our place, who did not choose himself over us, but chose us at the expense of his own life. If we want to break out of our legalistic bent, we need to get caught up in that king, in that story. And as a picture of that story... The people break their silence, and they step in. Verse 45, the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, so he did not die. The people stand in the gap, and they ransom him. It's the same language that's used in the Passover back in Exodus for the blood of the lamb on the doorpost that ransoms them from death. They know that Jonathan is the one who is actually acting like their king should have been acting the whole time. And notice, they actually offer up an oath themselves. But who do they invoke in that oath? They have a vertical orientation. They invoke the Lord. It is sensible, sensible. And honoring to the Lord that we step in and overrule you as king. And so they save Jonathan. Now, if Saul is a picture of legalism and a burdened heart and conscience, Jonathan is the one who acts in faith, not out of fear. I mean, do you feel the freedom and the boldness that his faith produces? He feels no need to defend himself. He trusts in the Lord's vindication. When we operate from legalism, from that empty religiosity, we'll never get there. We'll always be suspicious and skeptical, and it will eat us up from the inside out. Jonathan knew no matter his earthly father, no matter his circumstances, he knew who the Lord was. What about you this morning? Have you experienced that freedom? Have you experienced that unencumbered ability to have some sanctified sarcasm in your life? to even make light of yourself. That is what is offered to us in Christ. There are two pictures that are painted here. The way of Saul, which is that legalistic, self-justifying, I'm going to do this my way and make sure everybody's okay with it, or there's Jonathan praying, perhaps the Lord will save us. We know that He can, and let's give ourselves to that. And lastly, we need to close by looking at history's accounting and God's assessment. Verse 46 tells us that Saul gave up his pursuit of the Philistines, and then verse 47 feels a little disorienting, if I'm honest with you. It says, when Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, including Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly, and struck the Amalekites, and delivered Israel out of the hands of of those who plundered him. And we get to the end, and he's listing off these different members of Saul's household. In verse 52, they're all going to become characters in the story, so we'll come back. Verse 52, there was hard fighting against the Philistines in all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Now, here's why I want to make the case that this is a little disorienting. That seems to be a fairly positive summary of Saul, doesn't it? That seems to be overwhelmingly a good thing on a figure that we know is deeply flawed. So what do we make of that? Well, on the one hand, there are hints of a problem here. The fact that this summary shows up tells us that his kingship is likely coming to an end, which is what we're going to see in the next chapter. And it fulfills Samuel's warnings that Saul is going to be a king who takes your sons and your strong men into his own service. He will gravitate to them and them to him. But let's not miss what the author's presenting, Saul, is generally a successful king if you're measuring success by the standards of this world. He's a mighty man of war. Wherever he turned, he routs his enemies. He delivers Israel out of the hands of those who stand against and attack them. This is precisely, by the way, the kind of king that the people demanded of God. They got what they wanted. They want a king like the nations who will win their battles for them. But underneath that summary is a massive warning that we have to wrestle with. Because listen, we started by asking, what, how do you define success? Because I know that we are a people impressed with charisma and with outcomes and with size and with looks and with beauty and with success and with winning. And you know what Saul had? Every single one of those things. Checked all the boxes. And if we're honest, that's the kind of people we want to follow, or that's the kind of people we often want to be. That's the kind of person that we gravitate toward. And that's because subconsciously, I think, that we get that picture of earthly success, and we think that that means God's favor. At any given time, we are all susceptible to believe a prosperity gospel light, thinking that the healthy and the wealthy and the seemingly put together, are under God's favor more than the lowly or the meek or the ordinary. And the summary of Saul here is a warning. Worldly success and impressiveness does not equate to God's favor or blessing. In fact, it can be a sort of curse, allowing you to live an externally impressive life that people can look at and applaud you for and follow you for, but inwardly you lack the character needed to live freely and forgiven before the Lord. And in this way, this summary of Saul is history's accounting, but that's only part of the story. Uh, Dale Roth Davis says this, "'History's judgment is that external human calculation of a person's life and work. It's what folks can observe, and by such a standard, Saul has made his mark and made it well. But history's judgment does not have the decisive verdict. The vital assessment cannot come from the applause of men within history, but only from the God who reigns over history. What matters then is not success, whether political or military, but covenant. Yahweh is not looking for winners, but for disciples. And for the Bible, covenant obedience matters far more than vocational achievement. We have then these two estimates of Saul, the historical and the covenantal, both are true, but listen, only one matters. Only one matters. To put it another way, Saul won on the field of battle against his enemies, but his failure came on the battleground of his own heart and soul. And those evaluating Saul as king, if they did so like the nations, pretty successful. Maybe he even looks back and says, yeah, that's a life well lived. But the evaluation from above, God's assessment, is what mattered, and Saul comes up empty. This is the whole point of 1 Samuel, if I could dare summarize this long of a book in one idea. This is it. It's coming in just a few short chapters. Saul checked all the boxes from an earthly evaluation standpoint, but he is empty inwardly, and the Lord will bring about a reversal. He's going to say in 1 Samuel 16, do not look on the appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So, brothers and sisters, let's end where we began. What are you chasing after in this life? How are you defining success? Are you full of external religiosity that is ultimately just a show? Are you longing for an impressive, outward resume where you can look back on your life and see that you checked all the boxes that this world says is success? We live in a world that curates everything in that way as being the good life for us. But that way, if we learn anything from Saul, leads to burden, enslavement, and fear. But friends, hear me, there is another way. King Saul's failures prepare us for King David But even more significantly, they prepare us for King Jesus. And when King Jesus comes and He talks about the good life and success and what it means to live a life that really matters, here's what He says in Mark 8. He calls the crowd with Him to the disciples and He says this, "'If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake, And the gospel's sake will save it. And then the question that we all have to wrestle with, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Listen, this morning, if you have gained the world, it's not too late. Don't forfeit your soul. The call for all of us today is from King Jesus, deny yourself take up your cross that He has already bore, follow Jesus, lose your life in order to save it. That is the way to a truly impressive life from God's assessment. That is a successful life in the only thing that matters for eternity, in the assessment of God Himself. So, brothers and sisters, let's deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you even in that command which goes against everything that our flesh wants to do, Uh, you're not asking us to do something that you have not done before us. Uh, We thank you that uh, though you are not impressive by worldly standards, uh, you have accomplished salvation for us who were wandering, us who have rejected you, us who have turned our back on the things you have called us to, who have not kept Our covenant relationship with You. Jesus, we thank You that You held up both ends of the deal, that You went to the cross where You bore our sins in Your body so that we might die to sin, live to righteousness, and live a life that is reoriented to what is successful, not in the short term, but for eternity. Lord, help us to have the eyes to see that, and help us see at the center of that the grace and mercy of You, our King Jesus and may that draw us to repentance. Show us where our hearts have gravitated toward earthly success and impressiveness and accomplishments, and show us the emptiness of that so we might be drawn into that which is life and life abundant, which is life with you. So, whether that's the first time today or we're doing that every single day, help us to do that now, we pray in Christ's name.
1: Amen.